0: Well, good morning again. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Is anyone thankful here today? Amen. Good. And you're walking in God's will. Amen. It's a good thing. You can't be walking in God's will and just be a sourpuss. Amen. Right? We all have to find our way to Thanksgiving, don't we? And not just the dinner table. That's easy to do, right? Uh, it takes a little bit more exercise to find our way to the lifestyle of thanksgiving. Uh, find a way not just to be thankful to the Lord, but uh, find a way to be thankful to someone in your home and someone within the household of faith uh, on a regular basis, and you'll find yourself to be a pretty happy individual. Amen. So will just say thank you all the time. Always something to be thankful for, including the love of God. All right, Romans chapter 8, we're journeying through these multiple questions at the end of this uh, chapter we've been enjoying now for a few months, we'll conclude this chapter next week, Um, but for today, we're going to consider together uh, just a few verses here, 35 to 37 at the end of this chapter, and uh, I hope it's an encouragement to your heart, um, for sure. Let's read these verses together. Beginning in the, verse thirty five now remember the, the the chapter began with no condemnation, remember verse one, and now we're going to conclude with the reality of no separation. we will never be separated from the love of Christ. who will do this? who will separate us from the love of Christ? and I love the uh, the pronoun here who in in verse 35, because in the Greek language, it can refer to people or circumstances. So think about that. Who or what? Is there anyone or is there anything that will separate what? What's the next word? Us. Us. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit didn't decide to have the... Paul write the word you. That's to be understood here. The omnipotent love of God is able to collectively hold the whole body together, which is comprised of individuals. So certainly if the love of God can can be demonstrated and, and can saturate the whole body, then certainly... How easy must it be for the love of God to maintain and to hold the one? Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... The words these things there would refer to that brief list given to us here at the end of verse 35, understanding the immediate context. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, I think it's, it's necessary for us to highlight right, the word loved at the end of verse 37. And the word love at the beginning of verse 35, because this attribute of God's goodness bookends this short little context that's going to help us understand again how secure we are in God because of the love of Christ demonstrated from him to us through his son. Okay, so um, let's go back. And uh, let me give you a little brief outline for our short passage of Scripture this morning. I want to highlight, first of all, in just a moment, uh, God's divine act upon us. God's divine act upon us at the beginning of verse 35. God's divine act upon us. Number two, the relatable experiences among us. The relatable experiences among us, and that's found in the second half of verse 35, and in verse 36, the relatable experiences among us, and finally, the spiritual reality for us, the spiritual reality for us, found in verse 37. Let's go back here to the beginning. And now that you have that outline, hopefully you'll be able to um, follow along a little bit more um, effectively this morning. We have all been uh, made familiar uh, with epic love stories. Um, I was exposed to Shakespeare's tragedy, uh, Romeo and Juliet, in high school, and... um, It was an interesting time in my life because as a 15-year-old kid, um, I really liked girls. (laughs) And um, I liked them a lot. And uh, I remember, I had a wonderful literature teacher in high school. He just did a tremendous job explicating Shakespeare to us. And uh, I remember him calling... uh, this tragedy written by Shakespeare, uh, a, a, an epic story of love, uh, love worth dying for. And, uh, and and I remember at the end of the explanation of, of this particular work of Shakespeare, uh, he said the lessons of love continue for us today. The love of Romeo and Juliet and, and uh, lots of lessons for sure. As I... Uh, Remember back into my um, beginning to understand and and desire a little bit more about politics. That was around the Reagan era for me. It was about fifth, sixth, seventh grade for me. I guess that was a two-termer, wasn't he? So eight years. And I remember for eight years learning about um, the love that President Reagan had for Nancy and vice versa. And, And many of you were eyewitnesses over media of even after President Reagan fell ill to um, Alzheimer's and his wife would continue to stay faithful to him and, and to love him even after his passing, uh, loving him unto her death. Um, epic stories of love and the lessons of true love that last for us today. But, but the love of mankind for one another, though it may be defined as epic, is always temporal. Even though their epic love stories may continue for generations to come to be told, they're still temporal in nature, aren't they? The love of God that, we're, that we know, that we have experienced, is eternal, not temporal. Go with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You can hold your finger here in Romans 8. God's love for us in Christ Jesus is eternal. God so loved the world. The language there would tell us that he loved the world even before the world came into sin. He created it. He called it good. He loved it. He loved her. Even after the world became familiar with sin, He sent His only unique Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's love is based in eternity because His Son, the demonstration of His love to us humanly, is an eternal Son. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, after He had announced His departure, um, the disciples were a bit frantic, not quite able to fathom life without their Savior in physical form. Um, He says, John records here in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were where? In the world. Having loved That's a powerful phrase in the Greek language. He had decided to love them, Before they had decided to love Him. I think that's critical for us to understand when we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of God? It did not say who will separate us from our love for Him. This is established in eternity. It's established in the person of eternity. The Son of God Himself. And He is committed to love us in eternity past. Cross-reference here Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 again. From eternity to eternity, nothing can separate us from God's eternal plan for us. This is sourced in his nature, in his person, in his life, his whole purpose for existence. And for us who he loved in the world right now, it's not only from eternity to eternity, but in our here and now, it says here, that he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them until the end of what? It says here in the Greek language, until the end of the age. It's not cosmos here, it's ion, is the Greek word. He loves them until the end of the age. And what's the age here? It's very, very interesting, as you study this out. The age in which the Apostle John writes in John 13 is still the age of law, Mosaism. So even under the rule of law, if you will, Mosaism, those who had truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, he would love them unto the end of the age of law in Jesus Christ. But he extends that offer of permanency to those who would believe in the next age to come, Because those whom he loved under the age of law, the disciples, would live on into the age of the church, which began in Acts chapter 2. We call that the age of grace, not the age of law. Not the age of Moses, but the age of the New Testament church. Jesus promised that he would love them until the end of the Ion. And he can't help himself but do that. And by God's grace we can't help ourselves but to reciprocate that love back to him who's loved us as we are governed by the Spirit of God. Amen. So, this is, this is the love of God. We, we love the hymn, right? Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary, what? My weary soul in Thee, I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that lifts us up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red. Life that shall, what? Endless be. Endless be. We sing the hymn here, love divine, all love excelling. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. He loves us until the end of the age And my friends, we could conclude there and have our prayer. And be blessed enough from God's word just in that truth this morning. There's a lot to be thankful for in this week of Thanksgiving. Just in those comments. But we continue on. What is the divine act upon us? Who will separate us from the love of God? Well... Certainly, 1 John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. Again, this first phrase reminds us that this is love of Christ for us, not us for Christ. It is based in God's eternal nature. God's eternal nature. And you really should, folks, here, if we're going to be honest with the whole of Pauline writings, you really should cross-reference here next to the first line of verse 35, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Explicated out in in very clear detail are all the immense ways that, that God has loved us or chosen to love us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you can including that Peter's writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It's very clear there, too, as Peter writes that great hymn of the faith. Blessed are we for all of these reasons, and it's really an encapsulation of all of God's love for us and those riches that we have in Jesus Christ. This is something that was a divine act of God's grace upon us. So again, is there anyone or is there anything that can separate us from this divine act of God's grace upon us? And of course, no one steps to the front of the room and says, yes, there is someone. Or yes, there is. There is one thing. Death can do that. No, Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No, death can't do it. There's another litany of things that we'll discuss next week together at the end of the chapter, but no one can step to the front of the courtroom and say, yes, there is one thing or there is one circumstance or one person. Uh, No, uh, not even Satan himself. Not even the God of this world that seeks to blind men's eyes, according to 2 Corinthians 4, to the truth of the gospel. Not even Satan himself, because learn what we learned two weeks ago. There's this thing called the intercession of Christ. And he ever lives to make intercession for us, pleading his own righteousness in us on our behalf before the throne of God, where Satan himself stands accusing us. So no, positionally that's not going to work because of Christ's intercession for us. Well, practically on earth it doesn't even work because of the Holy Spirit's intercession for us. The Holy Spirit is constantly with, interceding with groanings we cannot utter. Why? Because it's his intention to help us know this book, to know the will of God, As we long to know it, but struggle to know it at times, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us so that we might practically understand it, so that we might daily live it, to demonstrate that the power of God has been given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really nothing can separate us from this active life in Christ. Nothing can separate us from this love relationship. But he goes on to say here in the second half of verse 35 and verse 36, there's some relatable experiences that we all endure. And he outlines these things for us because the Roman believer was probably thinking when he asked this question, hmm, what could there be? And so he just kind of outlines some things that he, the Apostle Paul, had personally gone through. And by the way, these were circumstances that the Roman people in part had gone through, but in full had not yet. I think that's an important note to make here, and we'll make it again towards the end of the sermon this morning. But the Apostle Paul is outlining some things, some common things that everybody endures. Are you with me? Everybody endures some of these things, saved or unsaved. We're going to divide the two here as we go through the list, but I think it's important to remember heading into it. Everyone saved or unsaved endures part of this list. Only believers endure part of this list. Unbelievers cannot. And they never will until they know Christ. But what's really interesting here, Paul understands for the believer, speaking from his own personal testimony, that it is much harder for Christians to endure what everyone endures, saved or unsaved, when they in particular endure the spiritual persecution as well, or in addition to. So he recognizes that there is going to be a special load, if you will, that God's people endure on this earth that those who do not know Christ will not endure. And he's sympathetic to that. And even though there's the the heaviness of this load at times to the point where we feel like quitting, and sometimes we do, the Holy Spirit's intercession never quits, praise God, right? There's nothing that by way of circumstance or person can separate us from this love. So let's go through this list. What are some relatable experiences that we all endure? Will tribulation, will tribulation, what is tribulation? In the New Testament, if you're a note taker, it's just the most general term for affliction found in the Bible. And it literally means to be squeezed. To be squeezed. Every day, believers and unbelievers get squeezed. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Everyone has affliction every day. Right? Everybody. You name it, you endure it. Uh, So Paul starts very, very general here. And then he goes on to the second word here distress. It's a compound word, and it simply means narrow space. Narrow space. Practical or spiritual claustrophobia. So squeezed, and he goes a little bit farther, into a narrow space. Did you feel like you didn't have an out this week in a particular circumstance? Whenever I see this word distress, and I know what it means, I always think of 1 Corinthians 10.13. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man... So even though you're squeezed into a narrow space, God will give you a way of escape. There's always a way of escape, spiritually for the believer. So we're broadly persecuted. We're sometimes more narrowly distressed. The third word here, tribulation, distress, persecution. Uh, This is the first word that the Apostle Paul uses to define the Christian life. This is is something that an unbeliever will never endure. This is trouble exclusively that comes from your Christian testimony. Cross-reference here, obviously, Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord calls you blessed if you suffer for his namesake. This is persecution. And by the way, each one of these Relatable experiences all come in degrees. There are some who are in a higher level of persecution for their faith in this room than others. Everybody who claims the name of Christ, though, I can say this confidently, everyone that claims the name of Christ is at least, even though it might be to the slightest degree, persecuted for their faith. You know you are. And some, as I said, more than others. Famine. Famine. Again, I think this is a uh, word that particularly relates to the believer here. Even though unbelievers experience famine in our world, the, the, the word here as it would have been understood in this context simply means someone being denied Daily food or daily need because of their testimony. This is the idea of someone that may have lost a job because they kept showing up on time and working hard. With a great disposition. Did you realize sometimes there's unbelieving bosses that don't like that? I know people that have lost their jobs, Christians, because they always were on time, they always worked hard, they kept their mouths shut, they were always joyful, and it made their employer way too uncomfortable. It happens. This is the idea of someone that's uh, not able to provide for their family, even food, because of their testimony. Nakedness. While famine may apply to food, nakedness provides really clothing and shelter. It's not just the idea of physical clothing, but it's the idea of the provision of daily needs to cover us. Shelter. Clothing. The idea here is covering for protection. And sometimes... This is a relatable experience for us because of our testimony for Christ being left without adequate protection and shelter and clothing. Peril. Peril. This is a word that refers to both saved and unsaved. The word peril here has behind it the idea of imminent danger and someone carrying a concealed weapon that seeks to cause harm to an individual or a small group of people. Now, in our country, has peril been experienced by saved and unsaved within the last year? Certainly. Certainly. We prayed last week that the word of God would have rapid advance here and that God would protect us from vile, right, and wicked men. That's the idea, literally, a concealed weapon someone premeditatively planning to use it to cause physical harm. Imminent danger. The sword is coupled with this. But instead of general danger, this is someone who intends to hurt you and no one else. Have we ever seen that before? Someone walks into a building, shoots one person, leaves everyone else alive, then takes their own life. Yeah. Exclusive pinpoint harm to an individual. Uh, Paul had experienced this in his life. Cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. Here again, are other parts of Pauline writings where the very ways in which he incurred hardship on this earth as a man, as a Christian man, are listed in addition to these. But the point remains that these are relatable experience among us, even those of us who are here this morning. I believe Paul, again, is telling the Roman believers, you need to spend intentional time together, helping each other endure through these relatable things now, because there's a time coming. In God's providence... In just a few short months, from the receiving of this letter, the Church of Rome would be under some intense conflict. I think that's certainly a lesson the Holy Spirit's trying to teach us when they receive this lesson, and they're reading these words for the first time. He's trying to teach them, make good during times of light develop these relationships, understand these relatable circumstances from one another now, understand how God's grace is operating in your lives now through these things, because we take times of lighter affliction and we're preparing for inevitable times of heavier conflict. Some of the people that are reading this letter for the first time would in short order being impaled on large posts and serve as human candles for the feasts of Nero. Some of these people in short order would be cast into the Colosseum and be torn asunder by wild beasts. You know the history of Roman persecution. It had not come at this point yet. But even though it had not come at this point yet, All of these experiences were still relatable among them up until this point, so make good now. Enjoy the grace of God being operative in your lives now so that you're already in the pattern with one another, galvanizing your understanding that that there is something and no, no thing or no person could ever separate you from the love of God. None of these things, you say, well, Paul, yeah, that's easy. Now life's kinda easy. Get prepared. None of us know what's coming in our future. All I'm saying is uh, we should always be prepared. And the preparation here is by understanding how God operates in our lives by his grace to help us persevere through any one of these particular circumstances. What's going on in verse 36? Uh, The Apostle Paul cross references here Psalm 44 and verse 22. Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We we, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, Can I just tell you that verse 36 is just a reaffirmation in general to what Paul has stated in specific at the end of verse 35? This is what he's saying, and I think it's good for us to remember. Affliction is common to man. That's it. Affliction is common to man, but to the believing person, there's an added duress. There's an added struggle in your human soul. But it's going to be common. It's going to be common. But here's the balance. Are you ready? As we conclude this morning, our third point, here's the balance to this common understanding of affliction, the spiritual reality for us. What's the first word of verse 37 as we wrap up this morning? But. But is a word of obvious contrast, isn't it? Okay. These are relatable experiences, but I love how he starts uh, with the love of God and he ends with the love of God and sandwiched in the middle are these relatable experiences. But. Even though we all struggle through these relatable experiences, here's here's what our focus is upon as we conclude. But in all these things, end of verse 35, we overwhelmingly conquer, and the only way we do this is through Christ, who did what? Loved us, and I really believe the grammar here. Understanding the immediate context of Romans 8, and those of you that love to study the word of God in depth, we can have a long, large cup of coffee over this. But I really believe the word loved here is in reference to God's electing love, not the immediate application of that love to us the moment we were born again. Certainly, certainly God has loved us, practically from the moment we were born again and he'll love us until the end of the age. I believe because of the context going back to Romans 8.30 that because Christ has loved us from eternity to eternity, certainly we understand what it begins to mean that we are more than conquerors. Because he's already won everything. He's already won. Let's go back. But, the contrast is obvious. We might often hear the phrase, um, well, Pastor Tim, uh, you can't help me because you've never experienced what I'm going through. Some of you have heard that, and, and I understand, and we certainly understand the gravity of that statement when it comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I mean, if certainly if someone in the body has gone through something that's grievous that I haven't gone through my first tendency is to just maybe read that text and let's go meet this other person that's gone through what I haven't gone through because they've experienced that measure of divine comfort in that circumstance that I have not yet. But certainly God gives us one another to to find comfort in those circumstances, for sure. On the other hand, though, does God leave us comfortless when there are no other folks near us that have endured the same affliction. We have to follow that logic out to the end, don't we? If I've endured an affliction for my faith, and there's no one in this company that has, and there's no one that I can go to to find out how God comforted them in that circumstance, does that leave me comfortless? What are we saying? The love of God's enough, isn't it? The grace of God is enough. The comfort of God is enough. The testimony of someone that you know inside the body is an added blessing, but not a necessary blessing. Because even if we don't have that, there's still no circumstance or person that can separate us from the love of God. It says here as we go on, in all these things, what? We, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. Uh, It's quite an important two-letter word here. The emphasis is not merely upon the degree of the trouble, but on the saint who is the recipient of divine love. Again, whether we have collectively endured the same struggle or we have individually endured a struggle and there's no one else to help us, it's still a part of a whole. We weep with those who weep. We, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We're a body. We're, we're part of a whole. We do this organically together. We enjoy this electing love of God together as we've experienced it in Jesus Christ. And what does it say here? We are. We are. It's interesting when you go around in different athletic recruiting trips, which we've had the, the privilege of doing, often in a, in a in a in a locker room, it would say like we are Penn State or we are you know, the Wolfpack or we are you know, the whatever, right? They always love to to uh, to dominate your mind with this is who and what we are and we always will be. Well, um, it gets really interesting here for the believer uh, because we are what we are because we've been loved, right? We are what we are, but what are we? We are together overwhelmingly conquerors. Uh, Some of you um, remember back in the 80s, and I know, ladies, beg my pardon, just for a couple seconds here. Back in the 80s, fellas and gals who are sports fans, you remember the sports dynasties of the 80s? Remember the Cowboys and the Steelers? Remember, we ever wondered if someone other than the Yankees could ever win the World Series? Okay, remember the 49ers? Right? They were called sports what? Dynasties. They were They were more than conquerors. Well, it's really interesting, a dynasty might last up to maybe four championships in a row and maybe seven to 10 in a team's 100-year history. That could be a dynasty. So they're really not more than conquerors, are they? They're not a dynasty. What, what, what the Apostle Paul is explaining here is a divine dynasty. The word "more than conquerors" is a double, it's a compound word, and it means uh, it's, 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 it's uh, <laughs> hypernicao. It's actually uh, more than victorious. In other words, there will never be a loss. There's no win-loss column for a believer. There's only a win column because Jesus Christ has won the battle. We are hyper-conquerors. And that's something that's been done for us by the grace of God. And we're only more than conquerors through him who loved us. And again, this love, my friends, this love is based in eternity. And eternal grace has appropriated that to our hearts as you, by God's grace, responded in repentance from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ therefore loved, not just to the end of this age, but to all ages. Let's close this morning by going to 1 John 4. 1 John 4. Outside 1 Corinthians 13 for a number of us, 1 John 4 is probably the passage on love that we go to most often in our Christian experience to find encouragement. But since the short chapter that we studied this morning both begins and ends with the the reality of the love of God, I thought we'd finish here with some comments on that same love. And as we read these verses beginning in verse 7, I just want us to, in our hearts, um, ask the Lord, Lord, just kind of show me the heavenly interchange here between me and God, and then among his people in relationship to the love of God. It's It's a beautiful thing here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is... From God. The love that's being discussed here is not the love of intimacy or friendship. This is the love of objective truth. How do we love one another? We love each other by obedience to the Word of God. The same author, right, in verse six of the next letter, says this And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. 2 John 6. So He defines love very, very clearly. It's an objective decision making love. We know the word that the Spirit of God's helped us know. We want to live it as he's helped us know it. And how do we love one another? By loving each other into the obedience of his word. Why? Because this kind of love came from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him, both practically and eternally, my friends. That's what it's saying here. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to what? Love one another. And remember, how do we love one another? In this particular context, this is not the love of, hey, let's go catch an Indians game, or hey, let's go bowling tonight, or hey, let's go catch a dinner together, grab lunch, all right? That's one aspect of love, certainly, that is the fruit of the love of what God's talking about here. How do we love one another? We love one another the same way God loved us. We love him because he chose to love us. How do we love each other? We choose to love each other, whether that's reciprocated or not. And that love is built up upon the objective truth written in this book and preserved for us. That's why disciple-making is so important. How do we love each other? Through interchange over this book and about this book and by encouraging each other with grace and love to persevere in living in a way that pleases God, according to this book. That's love. Amen. That's love. And sometimes when we have to choose to obey God, it doesn't feel very good. This is not a love of feeling. This is agape love through the whole text. This is a love of choice that's based on success through following and submitting ourselves to inspired, preserved truth given to us in the scriptures. This is how we love. And guess how God loves us into the end of the age? By His word, "I have loved you." The same creator that said, "Let there be light." and it was, what? It was so. is the same recreator who both made you and remade you by his grace. And he says, I have loved you. And so it will be so. It will be so. Let's pray together.